On November 25, 2015, a startling headline appeared on the Boston Globe editorial page. It read, Harvard School Alumni, Stop Donating. The author was Bianca Tylek, a Harvard Law student who just a month before had helped the school raise millions of dollars at a fundraiser. I asked Bianca to read some of the editorial for me. Uh, so start here, right? Yeah. To the extent that my story motivated our alumni to open their wallets, I now ask that they close them and stop donating. Great damn. <laughs> That's what everybody said. They were just like, whoa. And I was just like, I don't know. What do you want me to say? Bianca felt like she had to say something. This episode is about how she and other children of immigrants are figuring out where they stand in the national dialogue about race and police treatment of African Americans. But first, a little explanation of how children of immigrants understand race, with a little help from their friends. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood. Our whole lives, we search for community, people with whom we feel we belong. For kids of immigrants, the search is complex. I can only speak from my own experience. I never had the option of being among my own kind. I didn't know who my community was until I met Ava Romero. For the record, can you confirm that you are my lifelong best friend? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I confirm this. Okay. I'm Indian. I was raised in Iowa. And Ava? Well, I was born in the Midwest. Um, I was raised in South America. I moved back to the Midwest after high school. And then I came to the Southwest 10 years ago. Ava Romero and I are opposites. She's an academic. I'm a reporter. In the photos of our vacations over the years, we always joke that Ava sprawls for pictures, posing like a hot Latina. And I sit there like a proper, buttoned-up Indian girl. But Ava and I discovered otherness together a long time ago, and we figured it out together, bonding us for life. I think it's kind of interesting that we're in this moment where we're talking about, like, race, and everybody is being a little bit defensive of their tribe. But what we're talking about is something that really, I mean, we bond very strongly with people who are not of the same national origin or the same skin color or the same ethnicity. Ava and I aren't an isolated case. Kids of immigrants tend to be friends with kids of immigrants from other backgrounds. The best example might be stoner BFFs, Harold and Kumar. Is there a problem, Officer Palumbo? Is there a problem? You ever heard of jaywalking? I'm writing you up a ticket. A ticket? Are you serious? Kumar, shut up. That's not the kind of tone you want to use in a cop. You can bust your ass. Bust my ass? Yeah, Kumar. Bust your ass. <laughs> what kind of name is that anyhow, huh? Kumar. What is that, like five O's? They're having a good old American names like Dave or Jim, you know? Harold. Harold. Are you kidding? No, that's great. Let me take care of you this. You should be proud of that name, son. 
Why don't you just take this quiet little Asian guy with the anglicized name that suits you so well and, and, and give him a couple other tickets? Better yet, just take him to jail. Better just arrest him. Does yeah. that work out for you okay, Harold? Perfect. Oh, great. Oh, Harold. Name, Harold. Thanks to your buddy. We're going yeah! down. If kids of immigrants haven't experienced something like what you heard in that clip themselves, they probably have a friend who has. And that brings us back to Bianca Tylek. So I'm half white, half Latina. And I've been part of the Black Law Students Association since my first year at Harvard Law School. Last year, Harvard asked Bianca to speak at a fundraising dinner to launch what they called the Campaign for the Third Century. The goal was to raise more than $300 million. I think they wanted to see the, like, come-up story, right? The story um, from, like, rags to riches kind of thing. And and I was willing to deliver that story. I was willing to deliver that story um, partially because I have gotten a tremendous amount of support from Harvard Law School, and I've never sort of underplayed that support. And also, I think there is a mutual benefit to getting up there, and I think you can't ignore that as well. They offered to give me a speechwriter. I had never had a speechwriter before, so this whole concept was a little uncomfortable. And so when I finally got my first draft of my, my remarks from her, I was mortified is the best way to explain that experience. And I got through about three sentences, and there was a sentence that read, my mother came here via legal immigration. And I just paused, and I was so confused. Like, I didn't remotely understand what she was trying to get across. Bianca ended up writing her own speech. Um, And so to begin the festivities tonight, um, we are going to have uh, a student at Harvard Law School uh, speak to you and tell you what it's like to be a student here. And Bianca Tylek, where's Bianca? (laughs) Bianca Tylek, class of 2016, take it away. Good evening. My mother immigrated from Ecuador after my grandmother came here fleeing domestic abuse And my father is an asylee from Poland during the political conflict that resulted in the enactment of martial law in the early 1980s. After marrying in Brooklyn, they worked through blue-collar careers to provide for me and my siblings. I spent years lost in special education classrooms before the advent of ESL. But years of separation made assimilation difficult. And at only 11, I became the target of sexual violence. A year later, I spent time in alcohol counseling. And by 13, I was expelled from school. That was the first time I had told the story um, explicitly in public. I mean, it's a story that I tell relatively often around here, um, sort of in classes and in our different like student orgs. But in terms of a sort of public narrative in front of 600 alumni, that was the first time I told that story. There was a lot of tears in the crowd, um, a lot of crying as I looked around, which was interesting to me. It was a cool Friday in March of 2013 when I called my father to tell him that I had been admitted to Harvard Law School. And I was met with silence on the other end of the phone. 
And my father said to me, I have to call you back through the unexplainable sound that tears make. And he hung up. And as promised, a few minutes later, he called back. And he congratulated me on my admissions, holding back the emotions that proud immigrant fathers have. And through a quivering voice, he said, this is why I came to America. Thank you. All right, so everything was fine after that? Everything was fine after the dinner, yes. And then how long after that did this other issue come up? Uh, so that came up a little less than a month later. This is what happened. Campus police are now investigating black electrical tape found on portraits of black professors at Harvard Law School. Professors, staff, and students met today to discuss the ongoing issue of racism. Some students are now calling for a more diverse legal education. Others, a more diverse staff and student population. Students say these demands aren't new, but they are hoping for a new outcome. Now, Harvard University says the incident is being investigated, though officials here have not called it a hate crime. Students say they hope today's community meeting is just the beginning. Bianca says she was disappointed the administration didn't have a stronger response. Less than a week after the black tape incident, she published the editorial in the Boston Globe. Here's her reading the rest. Over the last few days, the Harvard Law School community has been trying to heal from the pain inflicted by the public defacement of black faculty portraits, in response to which the administration has shown little support. To be clear, this is not the first or even a rare instance of racism in our community. But after presenting a glorified image of this institution, I now feel implicated in the administration's ongoing failure to address it. I am taking back the podium to contextualize my remarks. Behind the individual support I have personally received here lies an institution that continues to promulgate the racist ideals on which it was founded. I stand in solidarity with my black classmates to defend their presence at Harvard Law School, perhaps selfishly holding on to them in large part because there are even fewer Latino students like me on campus. Looking back, I feel that the administration simply made me into a minority marionette and asked me to perform. I held my hand out with a smile like a good little colored girl. I was used, but so were the alumni. The administration tugged on their heartstrings, dangled my story in front of them like bait, asking the alumni to buy into my success, but failing to do so themselves. I watched as some wiped tears from their faces while others just let them roll. That evening, they marketed to our alumni the same image that they marketed to us through brochures of smiling black and brown faces. Stories of success shade the truth that for every one of me that makes it on that stage, there are thousands more that never ever even dream of stepping foot onto our campus. And for the few that do, the road is not easy. We are met with doubts about our intellectual capacities while simultaneously being expected to educate our peers on the struggles facing minorities, immigrants, and the socioeconomically disadvantaged. I have always been annoyed by the exploitative nature of university applications and fundraising, but I have played along because not to is to forfeit opportunity. 
I have to come to those who have and beg to be let in. I ask our alumni to use the power of the purse to bring change to the school. Do not let us go into the third century propagating the same hate that our institution has over the last 200 years. I will never forget the way our alumni stood up for me the night of the gala. I am asking for their support again, but I am closing my hand because this time it will not cost a thing. So, my dear Harvard Law School alumni, will you stand up for me now, or was I just dancing for you? After the editorial was published, there must have been some reaction. Did you ever have a moment where you were like, oh shit, what did I do? No. (laughs) So I never had an oh shit moment, though a lot of people around me did. There were folks who sort of asked me to consider the ramifications of making this type of ask and releasing this type of piece to the public. And some of those ramifications included the loss of an offer, you know, a job offer that may or may not come your way, you know, anger from the obvious administration, and, and understanding the power of Harvard Law School, really, more than anything. And I had people ask me, do you still want to go forward? And there was never a moment in my mind where the answer to that question was no. Why did you do it? I mean, why did you feel like you had to go to that step of putting it in the globe? I felt like I had put out a certain image of the institution to an incredibly, if not the most powerful group of people. So you wanted to reach that population again. Right. And there was no one else that could do that. There was no one else that could use that same platform after having been having been in front of all those people and most importantly, have already been con- like confirmed in having credibility by the institution itself, right? It was gonna be really hard for administration or anyone else to come at me afterwards. When you just asked me to speak to 600 alumni and launch your you know, campaign going into the third century, you can't call me you know, crazy, you can't call me unintelligent, you can't say anything. You've already defended, you know, my credibility enough that I can now say something and that can't be questioned. Uh, Your parents, are they worried? (laughs) Oh, my parents. Um, How do I answer that question? I don't share these things with my parents. So for the most part, they don't know for a number of reasons. I think part of that might be fear. Part of that's the old school, like, you need to respect your elders. Are you out of your mind? Like, what are you doing getting into, like, feuds with administration or professors? You know, a lot of things that I think some people may have thought in response to my original piece, which is, like, you're not thankful for what you've gotten. Are you, you're, like, an ingrate? that, you know, you, sh- you should be totally satisfied with the idea that you've been invited to that institution and not ask for anything else. And I think in many ways, my parents would probably share those sentiments. I think the standpoint is, like, if you were born in this country, then, like, you shouldn't complain about anything. Because those of us that came here from abroad really had to work hard. I didn't speak the language, and I didn't have the education, and I didn't have this. How can you complain if you were born in America? 
And so there becomes this sort of disdain for, I think, people who haven't sort of like picked themselves up and made something of themselves that were that were raised here in the States. Did anyone say, why was the black tape issue something you wanted to speak about? Why was it your issue? I don't think I've ever thought it's not my issue, but at the same time recognizing that my role might be different. I think that there is a very strong role for allies of the black community to play. And that role is one of humility, of understanding what you don't understand, and at the same time promoting the voices of those who do, giving them platforms maybe that otherwise they wouldn't have to raise those issues. I think allies can often have some of the, some of the biggest impact because they're in rooms that unfortunately the black community isn't invited into. And it's what happens in those rooms that changes, I think, American culture around racism in general, right? Like, it is the moment that we invite them into those rooms that actually things start to change. But unless there's somebody in that room advocating for that invitation, I think it's, it's, it's an uphill battle for them. I think so much of what we're arguing for isn't just us, right? I think so much, I mean, I think 100%, it's not really about us. Um, it's about what this institution represents and what it's not doing for the masses. I mean, I think one of the most comical things that for me has come up as a result of this whole um, debate has been a lot of people, including administration, including professors that have sat here and said, look, we're just one institution. How can you say we're even remotely connected to racial injustice that's going on in the world, right? How can what's, you know, a racial microaggression at Harvard Law School be connected to Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown or Eric Gardner? Like, how is that a thing? Which is so incredibly dishonest to me and disingenuine because we were all sold on coming here, on the idea that what we do here after we leave will impact the world. We were told that we will be the future leaders of America, right? That we are the future CEOs, Supreme Court justices, presidents of the United States, and yet here you are telling me that you don't understand how what we do here impacts what happens in the world. You're lying to my face. And I also like sort of to add one piece, which is to take this sort of outside the context of just sort of Black Lives Matter and Black on campus and and all of that is that like, I am a Latina female and we have one Latina professor, Latino professor, excuse me, and who was hired within the last year, right? And I think that like, while, you know, this is intentionally something that I think we need to raise with the black population um, also has like a wider net sort of in its implications later on. And, you know, that happens a lot, I think, for the Latino community. I think the Latino community here at Harvard Law School is an abysmal representation of America. Um, We have far fewer Latino students than we have black students. And... And by far, I mean, like, dramatically less. 
uh, despite the ever-increasing number of Latinos in America. Um, and often the, the Latino students that we do have aren't your, like, Chicano-Americans and Puerto Rican-Americans and Dominican-Americans. They're like the international student from Venezuela, right? Or our, you know, beloved friends from Spain, or all of our Latinos that are white. And I think a lot of my classmates who are Latino would agree with me. Like, they, like despite fitting into that mold, and I mean, I'm half white, so I can't even pretend, you know, I think you recognize that as like a giant issue, right? Um, that we don't have our true like native Hispanic or Latino people here. What did you mean by I was just dancing for you? Um, so it's a, I think, tag back to sort of days of enslavement and, and Jim Crow laws and sort of the whole idea of um, abiding by the rules, wishes, and wants of the majority sort of white wealth class and um, this idea that you're just sort of a puppet and um, and that they that you're at their disposal, right? It's tough though. It's like, what do you use to get ahead? So I think there is a line in which I say um, to not play along is to forfeit opportunity. And that's exactly about that. It's about the idea that unless you play along and you do the dance and you sing the song, you can't get anywhere because the people who have control over um, the gates, right, um, aren't going to let you in until you sort of... um, meet all of the things that they'd like. And so we do it, right? And so when you, every time you sit down to write that, you know, college application or that law school application or that fellowship application, you find yourself telling them, like, your deepest, darkest secrets to people who, like, you won't ever even meet. Like, that's ludicrous. I know, you've got to commodify your past. But if you don't tell them that, you won't get here because you don't have daddy writing a check and you didn't come out of the right school and you didn't have all of the other pedigreed items. You can't check all the boxes, right? The box you have is, here's my story. Feel bad for me, but I promise you I'm dope. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) I don't know how else, how best to explain it other than I think you're trying to to convince somebody that your struggles, your strife are going to make you successful because you don't have all of the quintessential classic demonstrations of success, many of which are tied to the community you come from, the parents you had, the schools you graduated from, they're not often tied to, I think, what a lot of people individually would have done otherwise. 
I have a lot to say on the shit. So <laughs> had you had you thought about all this stuff before this happened? Yes, and uh, I think in particular the like this topic of of sort of the exploitative nature of um, applications and getting into sort of white privilege circles um, has been something that I think. I think about over and over every single time I have to sit down and write one of these. Um, and it's because at this point, like, I'm like a superstar at being able to tell my story and I know what's going to like get people and, you know, you know, that whole aspect, um, all of it being like 100% true and genuine and sincere. Um, but you know, like, it's like writing a novel. It's like, what's, what do you know is going to um, to do it for somebody, right? Uh, and, you know, there's certain things that, like, aren't. Like, nobody cares that you, like, played on a soccer team. Like, it's just, like, that's not that interesting as much as that is. And on this one occasion, I uh, I remember, like, I think it had something to do with this, actually. But, oh, no, it was an application for a fellowship, and I had written my story out, and I was like, this is my story. Like, we're good. And um, somebody who was reviewing it um, highlighted this line. And the line was something to the effect of, you know, when I was in high school, um, I attended my boyfriend's funeral and visited friends in, in drug rehab and you know, took telephone calls from friends incarcerated. And they highlighted this line and they say, you should lead with this. And this is one of those moments where you're just like, no. I know my story. And I have put my story out there so many times. For all of those who, you know, want to have that uh, emotional connection to a community they don't understand. But I'm going to do it on my terms. I'm not going to let somebody tell my story. And I'm not going to let you try to define me by some of these moments. I think they are part of my narrative, but it is important to me that I can contextualize them the way that I want so that my image is preserved in the way that I want it to be. Um, and not leading what, what is the most provocative thing you can say. Uh, it's just something that like never resonated with me. And so I think that's part of it. I've, I've really, really embarked on this whole like philosophy of like, be the person to tell your own story. Uh, and I think the first time this dawned on me, I was 15 years old. And it was when uh, my boyfriend had been murdered and there was an article written in the local paper in my town. And it was, um, it was basically, I mean, wasn't an obituary, but it was some writer who decided to take to um, the public the idea about who uh, who he was as a gang member and the fact that his death was a sign that gangs were somehow now invading our town and we should all be terrified. And he 
closed the article with a line I will never forget until the day I die, and he said, at least his life ended in a pool of his favorite color. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't for the life of me understand how someone could write that way about a human life, right? This concept that like, I, does he, he just doesn't matter. Um, or was it like social commentary about the fact that, you know, anyone like that either doesn't have people who care about them or maybe they're just illiterate and can't read the local newspaper? I mean, our town had 30,000 people in it. This isn't like, you know, New York City and God knows, like, of the 8 million people who's going to read this, right? Um, it was just, yeah, I still have that article. I asked Harvard Law if there's someone else they'd want me to interview for a counterpoint to Bianca's comments. They gave me this MLK Day message from Dean Martha Minow, quote, as the nation confronts painful evidence of enduring prejudices based on ethnicity, race, religion, gender, and sexual orientation, among other grounds, we in this community must try, as did Dr. King, to expose and defeat discrimination and injustice. We do so not only to better our institution, but also to better ourselves, this nation, and the world. At a time when fears and hatreds jeopardize prospects for peace, safety, and equality in this country and in many parts of the world, isn't it right for us to renew our dedication to use the tools of law, knowledge, and reasoned argument for our own welfare and for the welfare of all? To that end, Minnow listed some new initiatives, including expanded discussions around diversity and inclusion. Let me know what you think about this episode by tweeting at OtherhoodPod, or email OtherhoodPod at gmail.com, or you can visit our new Facebook page. Thanks for listening. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this has been Otherhood. 